This Cool Is Out podcast with Mike and Miles. We're all about asking questions and finding solutions for all things education. School is out. Now let's get started. Hey, Miles. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Going all right. So after our last podcast last week, we did a, a pretty big, big deal on like the ideal school, the ideal classroom, and now we wanted to to dig a little bit into the finer details of some strategies to make that happen. Yeah, we talked about what what great instruction or great practice looks like in a classroom, mm-hmm. and I guess specifically what teachers can do to make that happen, which is really important for us. And that's where you know that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and where education really happens, yeah. and where individual teachers can do things to make their classrooms great, or they can also do things to kind of lose control a little bit or get off track. And if they, if they do the right things consistently, they can, have, they can have really dynamic, great classrooms. I like how you said that too, because if there's things that you can do to lose those things, not necessarily because you're doing things poorly, but maybe in my eyes is not have procedures in place to anticipate some difficulties so and that's I think something that, that I'll mention later on is is having decent procedures to fall back on to prevent frustration levels from boiling over um, something I wasn't good at when I first started teaching something I thought oh this it'll all just kind of fit together but without those those safety nets in place I found myself getting frustrated frustrated at, at kids frustrated at myself and then I you know I had to correct those things so um, I guess from the thousand foot view is is from way far away is have the mindset ready to go. So you've got to have an open mindset. And I guess in our world, people say a growth mindset, but having a good mindset. And then after that, getting into those finite details that like planning and what does what, what things should you put into your plans when you're when you're using strategies in a classroom to garner the best success you can. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is an interesting conversation, I think, because when we talk, we're looking basically at all levels of education. We're looking at teaching and learning from K to 12. And a lot of times people, I think, look at those different levels and think they're not the same. But the closer you look at them, you really find, and you've said this on this podcast before, that great instruction in a third grade classroom is very similar in your mind to great instruction in a 12th grade classroom, we really think that's true. Yes. That generally great instruction K to 12 is great instruction. I agree. Great instruction is great instruction. And, and I think what we should talk about is what does that look like? And I always, the first thing I say is it comes with an intense amount of planning. And for me, even as a principal, I'll, I'll have that conversation with teachers is if you're not willing to plan at least as much as you're willing to deliver, you're, you're not you're not going to find great, great moments that you might have seen on YouTube or great, great moments that you might have seen in someone else's classroom. Really amazing lessons don't just fall together. They don't, they don't just happen spontaneously or, or out of the middle of nowhere. And, and I think that's important for people to know. When you see a teacher throwing out amazing lesson after amazing lesson after amazing lesson. What you don't see is the background that goes into those lessons. And for me, it is all about planning. And I take it a step further. I often called my own lessons. They were choreographed. It's, it's an amazing choreography to deliver 
an amazing lesson. Every second of that lesson is not only planned, but the outcomes of, of every second are predicted. I mean, I would go over and over my lessons in my head, even driving to work, like I'm gonna deliver this, and when I do, I expect this one student to say this in response, this other student to say or do this in response, and when the, when the kids don't meet my own expectations, I'm hoping that they don't meet them because they've surpassed them, but if they don't, if they don't meet me in the other direction, I replan and, and I, I reflect on where that where that lesson went. So if we're talking about this and we would say that we're kind of laying this out for classroom teachers and talking about specific practices, number one, planning. Yes. So in your mind, you've talked about the detail of that planning, but what does a, a teacher need to do to ensure that their planning is on point, that that plan that they walk into the classroom with is going to allow for them to be successful? You must know the outcome before you ever start to plan. Where do you want to go with this? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? I mean, if you don't have a blueprint for, for a, a shed that you're building and you just start to build and you get upset with a, with a wonky looking shed, you had a plan. You, you need to go over the plan and, and where it's going to go, like what the outcome of it. Um, and and I, would, I would strongly suggest moving away from just following that textbook. Just, well, if I, if I get to the textbook and I just go from page 1 to page 15, and on page 15 is the assessment, and when you give the assessment, that's the first time you've seen it, that is not good practice. That is the that is the farthest away from good practice as you can get when it comes to planning. Right, and I think that teachers at all experience levels get caught up in that. And you know, you've talked about the importance of putting time into your plan. It's not that I don't think that people want to spend that time. I know that teachers often feel crunched for time, and they feel like there's too much to do and too little time to do it. But like we're saying, if you don't put the time into the plan, then everything else is going to kind of be messed up in a way. Agreed. And when you're talking about starting with the, the final destination, mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing for any plan. And I would recommend, you know, in curriculum design speak, we call that universal design or backwards design. But start with, if you're planning, don't start with, September week one, start with the final destination. Where am I going to be on day 180? Whether you're teaching first grade or whether you're teaching high school math or whatever that is, where do I want to get to on day 180? What's the big goal for mm -hmm. the whole course? But then start to divide that up naturally. Where do I want to get to at the end of semester one? Where do I want to get to at the end of this unit? Right. Then where do I want to get to at the end of this day to make sure I've gotten to my, my students to that goal. Right. And I think it, we talk about it backwards, but it's not backwards. That's the way that a plan should happen. Right. And, you know, I'm going to go on a vacation to California. I know I'm going to go to California. Yeah. What we do in, in education a lot of times is we'll just say, I know I need to start driving because the school year is going to start or my kids are coming in, you know, at 9 a.m. and I need to have something for them to do. No offense to anybody in this situation, but it's just – we just start driving right. and we don't know where we're going. The students don't know where we're going. The teachers don't know where we're going and we just start heading off. And you go in all different directions 
And someone might end up in California by mistake, but other people go all over the place. And we don't have, you know, that goal first in mind. Right. But you can do that every day with every lesson. This is what I want to accomplish. Yeah, and that's that's when we start getting into those finer details of concepts and skills. That's that's where those words start to make really good sense. Um, some some more concrete examples, like you were saying, to follow up on. When I taught Spanish, like very very broad universal things. I know that in Spanish too. What's the big big idea for Spanish too? The past tense. That's kind of how I always looked at it. When kids come to the Spanish too. It's, it's my job when they leave Spanish 2 to have a, a decent understanding of past tense because Spanish 1 focuses on the present tense. It's, it's kind of a sequence of things, and, and one builds off the other. Um, there's a lot more that goes into Spanish 2 than just the past tense, but that's the big idea, mm -hmm. the universal idea. Grade 3, for example, think of, think of even your experience in third grade. I bet you I can tell you what you learned in third grade. The big idea is multiplication. That's like, if for math in third grade, it's, they kind of go hand in hand. Is This is when we start learning our times tables. Fourth grade is when we start developing that, that, long, that longer, drawn-out version of multiplication and division. But you get those big universal ideas, and then you start honing into what other concepts am I going to teach that lead into that, and then what are the skills that go along with each concept? What skill do I need to know to multiply two numbers together? What skill do I need to use to turn a verb into the past tense in Spanish? So then we start narrowing those things down. And I'm going to take that one step further. Stay with me for a second, but go to Spanish 2 for a second. And what did what tense did you say? Past. Past yeah. tense. Okay, so mm -hmm. that's my big goal for the year. I want all students to have mastered this concept. Mm -hmm. That's my, my big objective. That's way out there. That's California. Then take one step back from that. How am I going to know if they've gotten there or not? And a lot of times we make that, and I've talked about this, we make that super artificial mm -hmm. and we put it on a piece of paper or a selected response test or whatever. And if, if I'm talking about great instructional practice, I'm then saying, how can I have my students show that to me and to the world and to everyone else around them? How are they going to prove that they've accomplished this? Not how am I going to just see how they did. Everyone's going to have done that. And how are we going to show that together? And start letting your mind go crazy as a teacher into that authentic piece. What could this really look like? Why are they learning this in the first place? There is a definite purpose, right? right. How's that going to look? <clears throat> and I, I, to answer that question, I think, I think my answer to that question is everything counts. Everything you are experienced Everything that you were exposed to by that student counts. Put it in the bucket. If you hear a kid having a conversation about what you're wanting them to talk about, put that in the bucket. That goes as an assessment piece. If they write something, if they speak something, if they, if they gesture something, it all goes into the bucket of their understanding. If you can catch them understanding what you're trying to teach them, that is raw assessment. And it should not be... We should move away from, well, I see that they're doing it well in front of me when I'm observing them, maybe even at a small distance, but they're not producing it on the test. Well, that's because that test is fake. And that's one moment, one glimpse of time. And a lot of people argue to me, well, Mr. D, they're being assessed by the state in that manner. Mm -hmm. And my answer is, I don't care. 
that's good for that assessment. Whatever that, that assessment tells me might be something different than what I'm trying to reach by going to California. Right, and we've talked about this. If you're able to set your goal way beyond that selected response assessment that the state is going to give, mm -hmm. your kids are going to do great on that state assessment also. Right. That doesn't or should not be your goal. No. Your goal is somewhere way out far beyond. You're going to catch that. They're going to do great, but they're going to do so much better than that. Right. And and part of going into that, I mentioned it just a minute ago. I, I'm kind of looking at my notes here, but a good strategy to always keep in mind going into assessments and going into putting everything in the bucket that counts is having those anticipated responses. It's critical. It's critical to anticipate what kids are going to present you so that it, it either matches or it doesn't match what you were looking for. For me, that is, that is, that is gold when it is when I'm trying to determine whether I've had an effect on kids, did what happened match my anticipated response? Right. And, but you have to be willing to, like you said, you said the word reflect. You have to be willing to reflect every day after every lesson and know whether that happened or not. And if it didn't happen, you have to be willing at all times to accept responsibility and ownership of that and come back the next day with a new plan or a new way to make sure that you do better at getting to that goal. And a lot of times I feel like people are just trying to place blame. You know, the students didn't get this because blah, 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 blah. It doesn't matter. We're going to accomplish this. And if it didn't happen, what do we need to do differently to make sure that it happens? And that's all that it is. Right. That's just good reflection. Um, let's drill down a little bit, a little further. I hate to use the term drill down, but I'm going to anyway. Um, so we've, we've got a solid plan in place. I've really, I've done a lot of planning. I've anticipated student response. I've looked at my, I've looked at my assessment piece. I, I'm driving toward that now. Now what? Now what's another strategy that, that maybe I should put into place to make this learning, this unit, if you will, successful? Um, right now I'm kind of talking to new teachers or maybe to teachers who are struggling with things, but what is your routine, your daily routine? Do you have something that is predictable for the students? When they're walking into the class, what are they predicting? So we've talked on several podcasts that you should greet them with a smile. They should definitely predict a safe learning atmosphere. They should predict that you are engaged for them, that you have a relationship with them. Okay, great. I have all that. Now what? Now what does your lesson routine look like or sound like and if you don't have a routine you're, you're probably you're probably getting close to having some behavior issues and you're, you're not close to it you have them you've got behavior issues if you don't have a routine right and I think what you're talking about and this is spot on is creating a atmosphere of comfort every day mm -hmm. where though the students know hopefully they're gonna come into a classroom and be exposed to new things or awesome, exciting things. But the structure of what's going to happen is very comfortable and it's set. Yes. They don't need surprises. You're going to have students who are coming in on a morning or whenever that are often coming from chaotic environments. Right. The more normal and stable you make your environment, 
the better off they are going to be. Right. You know, if a teacher comes in, I don't really know what I'm going to do today, or I haven't got this all planned out yet, I'm going to give this to them, and then I'll figure it out as we go. And that happens sometimes. The more that happens, the more chaos there is. Right. And as soon as that uneasiness or unpredictability happens, that's when all of those other problems occur. Right. And as an anecdote, because you know I'm, I'm all about that, in my mind, imagine... Maybe this is for parents listening to this or, or somebody who's not in the field, but imagine reading an essay or, or reading a chapter out of a book and then all of a sudden somewhere in the middle of the, the essay or in the middle of the chapter, the author just stopped using punctuation or any type of, of grammatical structure at all. Just every letter is after itself. That, that in itself is just chaotic. Right. And you wouldn't know what to do with it. Right. And then it goes back to normal, but then it might just do that for the rest of the book. Right. It, you don't know. You're going to be stressed out reading that, just like you'd be stressed out sitting in a classroom that doesn't have a predictable structure to it. Right. So think about on a whole school level for a second, what school looks like, elementary school, middle school, high school, doesn't matter, what school looks like when there's a change to the normal daily routine. Mm -hmm. When a speaker is coming in or you're going on a field trip or there's an assembly or something, people are generally yeah. uneasy. The kids are at a fever pitch because it's something that's not within the normal routine. Yeah. Routines help people a great deal. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you can't do those things, but you also have to be really prepared for them. But I'm just trying to make the, the real small analogy on a school level. Sure. What it looks like when something is different. So you're going to do different things every day in your lessons and all of those things. But the structure should be very, very predictable to everybody. That can be different for different teachers. But it should include letting everyone get into your classroom. Letting everyone know that everyone is there and ready for the day. Telling them what they're going to do that day. And then doing it. Yes. That's very, very basic, but that makes everybody feel comfortable. That is the basic version of what every good teacher should be doing. And I, I'm going to highlight what you just said. They should be informed of what they're about to do. Mm -hmm. Putting the objectives first at the forefront of the lesson is a critical piece. Hey, kids, this is what we're going to do today. This is what you're going to do. This is what I expect of you. We know where the middle is. Let's walk up to the line together. Um if, if we dig down a little further into that structure right there, you've heard me talk before about a gradual release model. I think planning for something like that is essential because it gives the teacher the power to uh, present what is unknown to the students. And then it gives the students the power to practice that together. And then it gives the student, singularly, the power to show you as the teacher that I understand this in whatever format and whatever medium you want me to present this, whether it be in writing, speaking, however. But that gradual release from I do to we do to you do should be evident in really good lessons. Unless, of course, you're, you're taking a day to celebrate something. And I'm not saying that, that that structure should be a ground and pound structure for every day, but it, it should be the outline to I'm presenting something today that the, that the kids don't know, this is the model I'm going to use to get it done. I'm going to heavily plan with anticipated response and know the outcome. I'm going to talk for 10 minutes. They're going to do together for 10 minutes. 
you're going to do individually for a couple of minutes so that I know that everything is fine. And all the while, I'm going to be pulling support groups or talking to smaller groups of kids as they practice. And I'm intimately going to know what you know and how well. Mm -hmm. And I have looked at instruction as deeply as you can look at it for as long as you can look at it. Yeah. But I would summarize what, what I think is the best structure of how to teach anyone anything ever, just like this. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We are going to do it. I am going to summarize what we did together. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you what you're going to learn. You're going to learn it. We're going to reflect on what you learned. Right. It's so simple. We miss some of those parts, but if you could think about every lesson in those terms, it's very, very important to always do that. I was thinking when we were talking about this of the lesson plans that you have to write as a pre-service teacher. <laughs> and each lesson, if I remember writing them correctly, it was like three pages yeah. typed. Like, and people would just make fun of that or, you know, you'd, you work with your cooperating teacher and they'd say, oh, I don't plan that way. Let me show you my lesson plans. It might be one bullet point. We're covering this topic today. There's a real reason why they have you do that as a pre-service teacher because like what you're saying, the more you plan, the more you prepare, the more structure that you have, the better off you're going to be. You might not use half of the stuff that you actually put in your plan. You said mm -hmm. that, I think, the last time we talked. But it's all there and it's all ready to go if you need it. And I think that's where really good tenured teachers, they thrive and they, they, sometimes, they sometimes find difficulty in that model right there because doing those types of things, planning at that level becomes much easier as, as you gain tenure in your field. So if you've been doing this for 15 to 20 years, this rhythm gets very second nature to you. But at the same time, as it's becoming second nature, you might find yourself just kind of leaning back on, on those old practices and missing that reflective piece. You, it, you, it becomes easier to say, I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm going with this, so I'm just gonna kind of coast into it and expect things just to be fine because I've been doing this for so long, I know exactly what I'm doing. But that reflective piece and that, that that piece that says I'm going to tweak this for this kid over here or I'm going to say something different for this small group of kids just this year, that's where master teachers constantly are, are attacking that reflective piece and not falling back on, for lack of a better term, complacency. Right, and you've said that word a lot of times. I said it also today, that word reflection. So we talked about planning. I would say, you know, another best practice is constant reflection. If we could get that across to every teacher that you must constantly be reflecting in the moment, mm -hmm. during a lesson, after a lesson has happened, after a school day has happened, after you've taught a unit, or even after you've taught a school year, the very best teachers reflect constantly. The very best administrators reflect constantly. It's easy to say, I've been doing this for 20 years, I'm plowing ahead, I know what I'm doing, uh, get out of my way. It's much harder to say, I've been doing this for 20 years, but I want to get better. Yes. I've been doing this for 20 years, but I have four students that I'm not really reaching right now. Or I've been doing this for 20 years. I've given this test every time. The kids used to do better on it. Must be different students I'm getting now. I don't know. 
it's much harder to say what do I need to change about my class or my lessons or whatever to make this happen, to make the learning happen for this group. Right. That's constant reflection. I want to I want to kind of dig into one of the the comments that you just made reflecting during the lesson. So I mean it's this this matter of we we keep getting more finite into moments within within these lessons, but how do you reflect while you're teaching? So what does what does that look like in your eyes, Miles? So you just said the key the key in planning is to be for you was to be very detailed to to anticipate what you're going to get. The problem is in that you're teaching humans mm -hmm. who are very different all the time, you know, and you may anticipate what's going to happen as you deliver something to your students, or I may have planned out this project for my whole class that I think is amazing. But as I present it, I have two or three students that I can tell as I'm presenting that they're kind of balking at what I'm talking about and I can see it on their face. So as I'm doing this, I'm reflecting in the moment. Well, geez, I, I think this is really good, but I can see on their faces over there, they're not thinking the same thing. What am I going to do in this moment to make sure that I have them along for the ride? A traditional approach might be, well, this is the project. Guys, I'm sorry you don't like it. You're gonna have to take a zero. Have a nice day. If I'm really being reflective, I'm looking inward at myself and I'm saying, what about this project? Did I not plan and prepare to reach those three students who are balking at this? And then in the moment, how can I get them on board? Or how can I change or tweak this or approach them to make sure that I don't lose them right now? Because you can lose anybody at any moment. But that constant aspect, uh, it, but that applies to anything, any way that you'd be teaching. And you've talked about this. I'm doing direct math instruction and I'm teaching and I can see that this one student isn't really picking up what I'm putting down or whatever. How do I need to change what I'm saying, my tone or anything right now mm -hmm. to do my best for my kids? Absolutely. So let's go over a couple strategies that I would do knowing that. I'm glad that you brought that out. That's exactly what I was shooting for. So I'm delivering a presentation, all right? I'm, I'm delivering a lesson, however you want to look at it. And I've got three kids that just, they're not picking up what I'm throwing down. The first thing going through my head is I need to gain their attention and find out if they're disinterested in the content or if they're disinterested in me. So that is the first thing I'm doing. And the first thing I'm going to do is probably probably because it takes no effort at all is as I'm as I'm in my 10 minute spiel of teaching whatever this is I'm probably just going to use a little bit of proximity walk up to the kid maybe nudge them just to, just so that I can look them in the eye and that look in the eye is going to tell me what I need to know it's you I don't like the tone you're using I'm tuned out I'm tired something is happening it's no offense to you Mr. D it's not you it's the content I don't engage with this I found it difficult as soon as you started speaking about it Whatever that look is going to tell me is going to give me enough feedback, hopefully in, in maybe one or two seconds, to pull a small group within a minute of where I am right now. Mm -hmm. So that's immediately what I'm thinking is, do I need to stop what I'm doing to release the group to pull this smaller group in closer to me so that I can reword it and redesign what I just did for the last however many minutes? If it's that they're tired, 
Let's talk about that for a second. Because I've had years of, of wondering, what do I do with kids that aren't sleeping at night? And, and I'm saying right now, if you have a kid who can't stay awake because it's a morning class or an afternoon class, is giving them that zero fixing the problem? And in my eyes, no, it's not. When you know at a human body level that a kid needs sleep, why are you going to punish them for it? You know, maybe today, if I show a little bit of grace today, I can get a little bit more tomorrow. Am I saying let that kid sleep? I'm saying let that kid intervene for him or herself at a high school level. Maybe that is get up and take a walk, go to the restroom, grab a drink. Maybe that is take a longer walk than what I, I would normally allow. Or maybe that is just like take it easy today and we'll catch up tomorrow. I know in an elementary setting, people aren't, they're, they're, at any setting, people are probably not going to like to hear that. But what if we don't do that? Then I give a kid a zero and say, you can't sleep, and if you sleep, you get detention. And that kid's body saying to you, there's no, there's no consequence you're going to give me to get me to stay awake. If I do stay awake, I'm going to hold my eyes open. It's no offense to you, Mr. D. I can't stay awake. I didn't go to bed last night till 3. That's what I'm trying to figure out in that scenario. I know we're going kind of no, but all I, over I, the place, but like we've got to assess those things right away. And you know what you're saying is having knowledge of your students in the moment. Yes. And then being able to change what your plan was based on that individual student or their needs or whatever. And when I said that, I think it's very important to put the goal first. Yes. You said the same thing. In the approach that you're presenting, remember the goal. My goal for this class is for these students to be able to demonstrate this at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. These students to be able to demonstrate this at the end of the unit. These students to be able to demonstrate this at the end of this class period. I've got this student asleep. My goal is still for that student to be able to do this. How am I going to arrive at that? This student needs something different because he's asleep than that student right there needs because they're fully engaged and going to get there. What's going to allow me to get this student who's asleep to that same goal? Right. He needs something different. It's my job to reflect on what that is to try to get him there because the alternative, like you said, is just cross it off, give it a zero. I haven't gotten to my goal. Mm -hmm. That's my goal for that student. We didn't get there together. Let me ask you this, Miles. Is what you're going to give that kid fair? <laughs> is, is that going to be fair to the other kids? We talked about this, but I will say it again. There is no fair. There is no fair. Fair hot sausage and cotton candy. Yeah. I'm going to give that student exactly what he or she needs. Right. The other students are also, if I've created, and I want to talk about this a little bit down the road, if I've created the right classroom climate and atmosphere, as I'm approaching that student, and like you said, asking him if he needs to take a little break and go on a walk in the hallway, or maybe it's letting him sleep for 15 minutes in my room because I know he's got a whole lot of crap going on at home and that's what he needs today, right now. Everyone else in that room, if you've created a community of learners like you should, and I wanna talk about how to do that, they're going to understand what I'm doing as a teacher. If I've done that right, I'm not going to have four kids saying, hey, you're letting him sleep. Why are you doing that? I have to do this 
assign, they're going to understand what I'm doing because I care about everybody in the room and right. I'm doing it for that person. And I care that they're going to learn this. I'm just going at it a different way for him right now. Right. So I'm very glad that you said that because I think if, if you're listening to this and you're going, well, that's not right. Well, then I, I guess we could, we could have you as a guest on our podcast because there's those, those we could be, talk through that right and people do feel like that and that. we understand that uh and maybe we could then shift one of the things that i want to talk about mike is creating in my mind um creating a connection with your class yeah I want and that. having the proper class classroom atmosphere that i would call a community of learners to me that's really really important for great instructional practice. How do you create a positive atmosphere where everyone is engaged and willing to do whatever it is they're asked to do together? Why just put them into different groups and make them make them work together? Well, that that should do it, right? I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know about that either. <laughs> I don't know about that. And I've, I've said on the podcast, I watched... I watched your classroom. I watched kids go in there happy, uh, and I don't want to make it too personal. But we have experiences. But we and we know that students who are happy and comfortable in classrooms do better. Yes. To me, and when I was just talking about that scenario of I'm the teacher, I'm letting this student sleep. Everyone else in the room knows. Oh, Mr. O'Shea is doing what he needs mm -hmm. because he cares about us. Right. That's very very important. And there's a difference though between a teacher who is well-liked or people just kind of come on board for and they don't hold people accountable and put the learning out in front and a teacher who is always working towards that main goal, I want you to learn and achieve because I care about you. Right. There, there's a difference there that I wanted to discuss, but just the model of I have these 20 people with me you know, in my first grade classroom for the year, or I have 20 people with me eight or nine times throughout the day, I want to create a culture where everyone's happy, everyone's working toward getting better. Well, let's, let's discuss that very briefly because I, I found something in my, that came about when, in talking with some kids from a while ago. So obviously some of the parents now were, were kids that I had in school, but Here's some of the things that I pieced together in, in your last statement and in, in, in the last couple weeks. Oh, of course, I'm going to use you as the example. Oh, I love Mr. O'Shea's class. He would just let us sleep anytime we wanted, and we didn't have to do anything. It was like a great midday nap. Okay, so let's hold on to that for a second. I love Mr. O'Shea's class because we didn't have to do anything in there, and all we, could, all we had to do if we wanted to was sleep. Versus, I love Mr. O'Shea. He was the best teacher in the world. He cared about me, and I loved doing what we did in that class. It was like one of the coolest things ever. There were two different things that, that went into that, and I did hear this in the past couple weeks. I loved that class because, which kind of was impersonal. I liked the class because I didn't have to do anything. Versus I liked the teacher because. As soon as you start hearing, I like the teacher over I like the class, Something you should you should start to feel some different way, because very seldom do people from that far out 
talk about the class or the content of the class. Very seldom, very seldom do people come up to me and say, Oh, Mr. D, I loved your Spanish class. I remember conjugating the present tense of AR verbs, and it was the most amazing thing I've ever done. No, not so much. And I'm not proud, nor do, nor am I ashamed when kids are like, Mr. D, I loved your class, but sorry, man, the only thing I remember is hola. Of course it is. That's okay. You took that class 13 years ago, and it was Spanish 1. But if they start to talk about me as a person, or the way that I instructed, or the way that I was there, that gives me the sense of pride, I guess, or, you know, that, that I did something right. Mm -hmm. Remembering the person that they cared goes so much further than remembering all I, I had to do academically in a class, unless it was some seriously impactful work. But that connection, like you were saying, that, that's what goes in, in lives forever. And I think one of the goals of being able to do that is not I'm going to have my students remember every word I ever taught them in Spanish, but that I'm going to show them that an educational experience can be really positive. And this content is important to me, and the students are important to me, but if you keep going in education, and if you keep applying yourself, you can have similar experiences to this. And you can realize that this place, this school, or school after this, can get you to where you want to go. Right. Like, I'm going to make this as positive as I can possibly make it for you because I know on some level you need this and other classes like it to be successful in your life. And I don't want you to disengage from this process. I want you to keep going, and I want you to know there's other people out there like me who care about you and care about what we're doing and all of that, and you'll find what you're passionate about. Just don't disengage from the process in general. Let's talk about some of the, the, the pitfalls, some of the things that challenge us. So if I'm going to let a, a kid um, take a rest in my class or take a long walk out of my class because they're tired, or if I have a, a kid who has a serious behavior issue and I might do some prescribed planned ignoring in order to not encourage negative behavior, um, Let's talk about how we still move the class and that, that student ahead academically because in my world and in yours too, you said it yourself, not learning isn't an option. You're in this class. You not, you not doing what's expected is not an option. So how do we forge forward? How do we keep that going in, in the face of adversity from that kid? Right. So I have written this down also of what I think great instructional practice is. But, and I think young teachers or teachers at any level struggle with this sometimes. First of all, having a very small set of classroom rules. Mm -hmm. And research will tell you the less rules you have in general, the better your students are at behaving. And you might walk into a classroom and see classrooms with 20 wall rules posted on the wall. And what do you do the second you post those 20 rules on the wall? You lock yourself into consequences and what happens if one of those things are broken. Right. If you have general expectations, everyone's going to respect everyone else in here. We're going to do our best at all times. And that's pretty much all. Other behaviors that I see that are related to that, I just address in any way that I want to, to get everyone moving towards those two central things.
We're going to respect each other. We're going to do great work. But as I have students as a teacher who aren't meeting those expectations, we've talked about this, it's different for everybody, but there are a few simple things I think can help anybody. The first thing is not singling out a student in front of his or her peers in a negative way when negative behaviors are happening. Sometimes that is ignoring that behavior if it's really minor and I can get through it. Sometimes it is asking that student to leave the room quickly, not usually in front of everyone else though. What I would do, if I have a student who's doing something that I just can't really continue with very much longer, I'm gonna end this direction instruction period when we talk about reflection. I'm gonna end this right now in 15 seconds. I'm not gonna tell everyone else because this is what teachers get into too. Oh, we're done because Johnny's misbehaving. I have to go talk to him in the hall. No, I am going to make it seem as though yes. I had another activity planned right now. Yep. I'm gonna move the whole class into that activity. Then I'm gonna walk over to Johnny. I'm gonna say, hey Johnny, I need you to go in the hall real quick. It's no big deal, I need you to go in the hall. Johnny goes to the hall, and I don't go with him right now either, because everyone's watching me at all times. You have to understand that as a teacher. Yep. Johnny goes in the hall. He's not quite sure even what's going on. I get the class set up on what's going on next. Now I sneak out, and I say, hey, Johnny, what's up? I noticed you were doing this. I noticed you were really annoying Jenny beside you. You were talking when I was talking. I've asked you not to talk when I was talking. Can we work on that? Because that was really kind of disrupting what I was doing. You might have something else going on. We can talk about that later. But if you want to come back in now, I need you to chill out on that behavior. So instead of having them in that, that discussion in front of everyone, that is only going to add fuel to that fire 99 times out of 100. Mm -hmm. I've done it real personal. I've let Johnny know I care about him. I haven't called him out. And he's probably going to be able to come back in and correct that behavior. Yeah. And, and I, I really want to jump on the other side of, of that instructional behavior. For anybody who's listening, who's saying, you know what, that's ridiculous. You know, you Johnny needs to just do what's expected of him. And I'm saying, okay, when Johnny doesn't, how's that working out for you? Mm -hmm. How's that working out for you? Because what, what are you going to do? Kick Johnny out? And how far are we going to kick him out? Kick him out of the class? Kick him out of school? Kick him out of the country? What are we going to do? Because somewhere Johnny's going to land. And Johnny still needs taught. And st Johnny still needs taught Spanish 1 and multimedia. Period. End of story. Because if you think for one second that Joni doesn't need taught and that he should go somewhere else, not in my backyard, where's he going to land? He's going to land in your community, my community, and who's going to accept, who's going to take on the responsibility for where Joni is? That's my job. That's my job as a teacher. That's your job as a teacher. That's our job as a school community. And shame on anybody who says, Johnny can't go here and I don't care where he goes. Right. Sorry. And I was just reading a little while ago, but the other approach to that might be, Johnny, you're acting up, you're bothering Jenny, I can't take it anymore, go to the office. Okay, Johnny goes to the office. I've just told the whole class, day one or whatever, I can't handle Johnny. Right. Johnny knows that, everyone else in the class knows that. Yes. So now Petey, what's he want to do? He wants to test me too. He doesn't like my class or he doesn't like learning to read or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. He's going to do the exact same thing. And now what am I going to do? This happens. Can I, am I going to send four or five or six kids to the office every day? Because guess what? Tomorrow, Johnny's coming back. 
Yeah. I've got them for 179 more days. Yep. And we get into this, like teachers get into that rut. You don't ever want to be in that rut. No. And I wrote this down when we were t when I was thinking about this. You have to handle a hundred percent of all of your behavior management by yourself as a teacher. That's going to be hard for people to listen to, I think. And the administration of a building is there to support you. Yes. But you've got to listen to what I just said. You have to handle a hundred percent of your man behavior management by yourself. I agree with that one hundred percent. And I'm and I know you're telling you're talking to me as a as an educational professional. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw that out there and support that statement because if you need a principal to come into your classroom and you say, I need you to come in and I need you to have a chat with these kids, what you have just done is you asked a good principal or any principal to come in and assume control of your class and to remove you from it. So now when the principal leaves and you go back into the classroom, whose classroom are you now assuming? Because when they're quiet and you come back in, you're now assuming the principal's classroom and not your own. And how long does it take for those kids to come right back to your classroom? That is a paramount, paramount picture of, of the need for true reflection. So if, if you have one or two kids who are... Um, a little bit unruly today, or maybe you have three or four or whatever, that is something that through your connection to those kids can be fixed. If you have a classroom full of kids and, and statements are being made like, these kids just won't, that is not a kid issue, that is an adult issue. Right. And if that is an adult issue and you can't, you don't like hearing that, and you say, well, I'm not getting support or the, the administration won't support that level of support that's coming from the administration is assuming control of your classroom and taking it over. Right. We'll talk about another specific strategy with having the teacher just take complete ownership of behavior. Uh, it could be at secondary, it could be element. A lot of times, okay, I've sent John into the office. It's the principal's job to correct that behavior. You've got to give him some kind of discipline. Like I said, he's coming back, but as the classroom teacher, I might assume that discipline took care of the problem. It's not gonna take care of the problem. The relationship, the interpersonal relationship that you have with Johnny is probably now gonna get worse because now there's gonna be a lack of trust there. Yes. Flip that and say, you know, I had my conversation with Johnny in the hall in the moment, like I described before, he came back in and now he, I can see his grade. Geez, he has a 65%, he is not doing well in my class and I can see some of his behaviors are leading him to not doing well. The best strategy I can think of to let Johnny know that I care about him and try to flip this script for him is to visit him sometime when my class isn't going on. At the secondary level, I started to do this, and I did it for years and years and years, and you would not believe the results that you can get with this small strategy. I have Johnny first period. My plan period's third, third period. Johnny's in a different class. Well, it's pretty easy to find out where Johnny is. I just walk right over to his class, knock on the door, Mrs. Smith, I would like to see Johnny for a second. Johnny doesn't know why I'm there. Mrs. Smith doesn't know why I'm there. Everyone in the class doesn't know why I'm there. But I get Johnny, and now I get him for five minutes, just the two of us, with no audience, mm -hmm. and he knows I'm taking time out of my day to come and talk to him because I care about him. And that conversation sounds like this. Johnny, you have a 65% right now. 
I know there's two assignments that you haven't gotten done. I don't know exactly why, why haven't you gotten them done and start to figure that out. But then say, Johnny, I'm going to talk with Mrs. Smith and see if I can get 20 minutes out of this class period by the end of the week where we can do those two worksheets together. Would that be okay with you? Because I really want you to do well. Yeah, Mr. O'Shea, that'll be okay. All right, I'm going to come get you and bring you down to my classroom. And I'm telling him I'm going to keep giving time out of my day for you. And you know what, Johnny? If you need me to come in early for you, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. What do you need? Like you said before, when you were asking people, what do they need? That, I think, is the single best strategy that any teacher can use at any time. You eliminate the audience. You let everyone know. Even that class that I'm visiting, too. Mm -hmm. Why is Mr. O'Shea here talking to Johnny? He's not yelling at him. Right. He's trying to help him. Yes. I'm trying to help everyone in this school. And you know what? If someone else in Mrs. Smith's class needs help, too... I'll come help you too. I'm not mad at you. I want to help you. And imagine too, even even at a even at a, a teacher level, it's I shouldn't say even at a teacher level, but on the teacher's level, imagine if Mrs. Smith went and did that on her plan period one time. Right. Imagine the impact Mrs. Smith now has with Johnny. Imagine if Mr. Charles did the exact same thing for Johnny. Right. Because we all know that Johnny is the type of kid that he is. Why are we going to passively execute him by saying, well, this is just the, this is where he's going to end up. When we know small little things that take absolutely no effort at all will make a difference in Johnny's life. Yeah. Those are easy things to do. And we just changed the game on him. Yeah. He's been playing this game. I have 10th or 11th grade. He's been playing this game for 11 or 12 years. He knows what to expect. But now all of a sudden, I'm not doing what he's expecting. I flipped that on him. Mm -hmm. And I'm different than most of the people that he's encountered. And now I have a chance to really correct that behavior and get down to what we need to do together. So, Miles, we were just talking about uh, how to support classrooms for all learners. But let's really talk about all learners. Let's talk about um, struggling learners on the other side of, of the coin. Are, are maybe our, our gifted learners or our learners that learn way faster than what we expect. What, what might that look like for you? So you're talking about a segment of the population that research will tell us is most underserved in education. I am. Either students who are identified as being gifted or who are just performing at a really high level or maybe not even performing at a high level, but who get everything faster than what the normal student would understand it. That's who I'm How do we about. keep those kids engaged? How do we keep them moving forward right. in a classroom? Let's think about, you have an elementary school classroom, there's 25 students in there, three or four kids who get everything way faster than the general group. Mm -hmm. They're finished. Uh, I think a lot of times you see them doing things like reading a book or drawing or work sometimes those students will even create a project for themselves mm -hmm. you'll see them do this for themselves that's how high achieving they are how fun high functioning they are yes. they'll create that for themselves because they're not getting it from their experience they're just that bored yes i think it's education's goal it's the classroom's teacher's goal to keep those kids moving in the direction we want them moving in so how do you do that uh, it seems hard how do you do that we were talking about this a little while ago. I think you work on facilitating open-ended, engaging projects for them and then work on integrating 
concepts or content that you're teaching them into that open-ended exploration. I agree. I, th I think that as a, as a teacher, you, you get comfortable with these children in your classroom because you know you don't have to intervene. And I, I challenge that because I think their intervention just looks different than interventions for kids who struggle. But when we, when we continue to put them into the same group of kids that are middle or are, you know, the, the, the larger group of kids exist, we're disservicing them at, at a terrible, terrible degree. Imagine being a kid who understands everything in a quarter of the time and doing that for 13 years. That, that's got to be painful. And there's people that are going to listen to this and identify with that and say, my God, it is painful. It's horrible. It's horrifying to think that I went to school every day just to comply. That was my only function to go to school was to just comply with what was going on and really learn what what I learned in a quarter of the time that 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 it was presented to me. Most personal to you, I might miss on this a little bit. Well, let's say that um, the student who you started this process with of asking questions, their question is. How fast can I get a car to go on Earth? That's their big question. Mm -hmm. They want to know what the absolute fastest is you can get a vehicle to move on Earth. Ah. All right. So you have this kid sitting in your sixth grade class. Now you're teaching, what's some sixth grade math content? Uh, probably graphing. Okay. So I'm doing my normal graphing lesson with my students. I get through the lesson. The kid who's really interested in fast cars gets through that in four seconds. And I know that he's in the information gathering phase of this project. I already knew that before I taught the lesson on graphing and I already knew that he was gonna fly through it. How can I incorporate some graphing into this exploration that he's doing? And it's so easy. I just make one connection between the content that I was teaching, his interest in this project that he's working on, and I can do that with every lesson that I teach throughout the day. I can hook that in to this bigger question that he's interested in and it drives itself as you start to go that way. Absolutely, and let's connect this, what we're talking about now, to the first part of the podcast. How do we know that this is going to work knowing that it's not fair that Tim is working on something else that everybody else is working on? Well, because we've already created that Tim is getting what he needs, you're getting what you need, we're all learning together. Right, and I think that when we're talking about these highest achieving students, we miss sometimes also I'm guilty of this in my own life because for a long time I've been focused on students with the most need or students who underachieve or, you know, that segment of the population. But if we, if Tim is working on this awesome project in the back corner of the room and Johnny maybe lags a little behind, doesn't finish his work quite as fast as Tim, but he sees Tim working on that, that serves as some motivation too for Johnny to say, well, how's Tim get to do that back there? That looks really cool. Oh, if you get finished with all these things too, I can have you start to work on your own project as well. Mm -hmm. Get finished and then we'll talk. Or, well, it takes me about all the time I have in class to do all my work. I think that's really awesome too. Well, you can come in after school. We're gonna start this group after school to work on these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Or I'd start to build that in my class and it becomes a part of my day every day. And like, you know that I'm wacky and I think that schools can look really different. I think that schools could use just this really simple model for like half a day of instruction. But to get back to your point, and I got off on a tangent there, every student in the room needs something different. 
There's no fair. I'm going to provide them with exactly what they need every day to keep them motivated, interested, and moving forward. And I think when I think novice teachers, maybe even even tenured teachers, fall into a trap too. When when they get those level of learners in front of them, they they look at their resource, or some might call it their curriculum, which we know we <laughs> we don't do that all the time. But they look at their resource and say, "Well, I'm I'm working with those learners with the extension questions that come along with the book." Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's that's quite enough. Yeah, I'm saying that that's just a passive way of saying, "Well, I'm doing something," and I'm checking the box on that. Um, those extension questions might be okay for here now in this moment. But we know those advanced level learners aren't just advanced here now and in this moment. They're advanced from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed and probably in their dreams too. So to design something very personal for them is going to engage them more than those predictable extension questions that, that they're going, well, okay, so I, I get to do more or I get to, I get to that, do more on this question. Right. That's not intellectually stimulating no. in any way and not what they want or need. <clears throat> no, absolutely not. Some people are going to listen to this and they're going to say, how does that fit into the grading structure of the class? How do I grade that? How is that student going to be assessed differently than the students who aren't doing that extension project? Well, I'll, I'll let you finish that thought because I, this... I, I, I'm, this is this is a kind of a this is a sensitive issue for me because there's there's things about kids that if you don't dig in and you don't know you'll be astounded when you do find out and i think part of really good planning goes along with that we just had a conversation too on our small break that what if we had individualized conversations with every kid in our classroom about setting goals for their learning even within topics what's what's our goal right here in math class. It's second or third grade math class. What's your goal? What is your goal to take away from math class? And imagine if we could catch this soon enough that my goal is to expand my knowledge and not get to where we've already forced four or five years upon a child who's advanced in learning and say, my goal is to fit in with the rest of the class. Because that's not, that's, no, that, that's not gonna work. And it goes across the spectrum. It even it's on the low side of things. It's on the middle side of things. It's on the high side of things. If it's not customizable and it's not going to fit me, I'm not going to buy into it. And I shouldn't just hopefully fit into the middle where we're kind of all aiming to get. I'm just I'm teaching this class to get the most learners to come along with me. No, it's every learner to come along with you and to grow every single learner. And and I guess there's there's going to be some pushback on this. But at the same time, I'm, I'm going to push back in, in the same direction that, that you're talking about, Miles. You said long ago to me one time, is it not the goal of every teacher that every kid in their classroom gets 100%? I mean, how could you deny that? How could you deny that me as a teacher walking into a classroom, my goal is that you all get 100% of what I want you to learn? Um, if I expect kids in my classroom to get 60% of what I learn, then what is my mission? Mm-hmm. So no, let's go back to that. It's my goal that you get 100% of what I have to teach. There, there's a concept that most people listening to this will know. It's, it's called scaffolding, scaffolding learning. So if, if I need to scaffold something up or down for every learner in my classroom, 
that is going to guarantee then that everybody in my classroom is going to get 100%. So if I have, if, if, if multiplication is my goal at the end of the year, and today I'm learning how to, for, for basic sake, we're going to learn how to multiply with our twos. What if I have somebody who already knows how to multiply with their twos? Am I going to make them endure the entire lesson on how to multiply by twos? No. Probably going to let them go a little bit further and extend themselves. Maybe make a personalized goal for them. What if I have people that are struggling to multiply by their twos? Then we still are going to work up with our ones into one or two episodes where they can get their twos. That is scaffolding, and if they succeed at it, did they not make their mark? They worked hard today. They got their check mark. They got their 100%. They got their grade. They're 5 out of 5. Whatever that is, I'm saying if you need a number to put on paper for a report card, then go get one. Mm-hmm. Go get a number. Because as we've talked about before, we know what that number represents. But if your community as a classroom knows what that number represents, they're going to be able to tell it to you. How did you get that 5 out of 5 today? I did my math. I did times tables. That was the goal. You told me that we we're going to work on times tables by two, and I got it. Right. The kid at the top who's doing their times tables by seven, they're still going to be able to say, I got my two. A lot of, about strategy today. Strategies to, to fine-tune lesson strategies on how to plan, on how to work with all learners in our classroom. And you've got something on deck that, that I think will, will take us out. It's, it's, it's impactful. I know you've said it before, and you live by this. And, and, and what is that? What is that one strategy that is that just seems to finish out this podcast so well? There's just one simple statement, Mike. Answer the why. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that if teachers are able to do that for every lesson, every unit, your curriculum, your year, that's the number one thing you can do as a strategy, as a teacher, to make your class engaging, to hook your students, and to give purpose. That's what it is. Answer the why. So what if, let, let's just develop this a little bit further. What if you have something that's that you have to teach that maybe you don't necessarily like, and now you're, you're maybe kind of forcing yourself into a sales pitch? Do you still have to answer the why? You always have to answer the why. If you can't answer the why, there's no purpose. I, I agree with that. So if you're going to put something in front of me, this is just me talking, and you can't tell me why it's important that I learn it, especially if I ask why it's important that I learn it, which happens once in a while. But even if you, even if I don't ask that question, if you can't explain to me why it's important that I learn this, there's a high likelihood that I'm probably not going to listen. Right. You're going to check out. You're not going to care. And you're going to move on. People ask me this all the time. What do I do when they don't care? What do I do when they won't do what I'm asking them to do? My answer to that is if you can tell them and show them why, they will care and they will do. You know, Mike did some burgers in my class. He's saying, I don't care about what this is today. It's my job. You talked last podcast about the sales pitch, the showmanship, all of that. It's my job as the teacher up front when we're getting started for that day and that routine to address the why. Today for this lesson, this is how this matters to your life. Right now, long term, forever. But most importantly, right now, this is why. I, you know, I've talked with people who taught physics talked with everyone I can ever talk to about education. The physics teacher that I asked this, you know, how do you answer the why? 
So a lot of times I just say you might be on Jeopardy someday. Punch, get out. No one's going <laughs> to listen to you. Don't answer the why question that way. Please don't. Yeah. You know, well, you might need this in college. Don't answer the why question that way. Yeah. You might do this in grad school. Don't answer the why question. It's got to be applicable to the person's life today. Right now. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think that, that that wraps it up very well. Um, I think that's probably the most important strategy to keep in mind. You know, when you walk in, be ready to explain why. Why this? Why now? Right. And I always also said that's the most dangerous question in education. <laughs> you know, and you, there's like there's cartoon strips about it or, you know, things like that with the student raising their hand. Why? Why do I have to know this? Don't let them even ask that question. Tell them why every day. Right up front. Awesome. Sounds great. I guess we're we're done with this one and, and uh, we'll have something fresh for next week. Keep talking about why. This has been the Schools Out podcast. Continue the conversation and explore past and future episodes at schoolisout.org.